Oh my god, I'm so tired. Okay, this is episode three of the Lost Rewatch podcast. This week we're going to be talking about episode three of Lost Walkabout. Uh, this episode is sponsored by MailChimp. MailChimp is the best mailing list software in the world. It's used by over six million people and businesses, including us at Cards Against Humanity. Uh, you can learn more at MailChimp.com. And this week we have a really cool guest. Patrick did an interview with Jeff Lieber. Jeff was the original writer who was attached to uh, Lost before J.J. Abrams um, was involved. So we'll hear uh, a little bit of Jeff's story and uh, give you some more information about that uh, a little bit in. Um, how are you doing, Patrick? Well, I'm not falling over on myself about to pass out, so I'm <laughs> by default doing much better than you are right now. I am I'm so jet-lagged. You should explain. What, why are you tired other than just like generally... Maybe you're just tired. <laughs> just tired of life. Uh, I'm in. Uh, I'm in. I'm in Stockholm. Uh, I'm speaking at a, con- a design uh, and uh, a programming uh, conference in Stockholm uh, called True North, and it's at a Japanese style spa in the Stockholm ar- Archipelago. Oh, it's um, that one. Okay, yeah. I remember you talking about this months and months ago. Um, it is a. It's a really cool conference. Uh, Stockholm and Sweden are gorgeous. It's like one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my entire life. It is uh, eleven fifteen p.m. here, and like the sun is just setting. Um, but goddamn, I'm so tired. And the uh, the bathrooms at this spa, it's all very Japanese style. I I literally have no idea how to use the bathrooms. I'm so confu- <laughs> I, I'm so confused. I'm that's uh, pick- that's, that sounds like when I was in Iceland, and it, the sun set like really late there as well, and it just yeah, it, it really screws with you. Uh, yeah, my sleep schedule is, is all fucked up because of, of just the general like like seven hour eight hour time difference. But but it, it being like the sun sets at eleven o'clock and it, and it rises again at four a.m. Like oh, I'm I'm just a mess. No, Patrick, nothing is going according to plan on this trip. Like I don't know how to use the bathroom. Shovel Knight came out and I I didn't bring the appropriate set of devices to charge my DS in Europe. It's it's so <laughs> it's so upsetting. Like I can't. You need I to buy into, a uh, USB charger. Well, thanks for telling me that now. Look, that's you know, I'm not your dad, all right? I'm sorry, son. I'm Shovel sorry Knight that... is out. Do you understand? Out. I do. I reviewed it. I do I understand that like very intimately on a I'm, level I'm that I, like a four-star level. I'm staring at my DS. It has no battery. It's right there. That's unfortunate. It's like five bucks on Amazon. You should buy a USB cable. They got mm. Amazon in Stockholm, right? Mm. I don't know. It's like... Saturday, maybe I could do it. Maybe I'll go. Maybe I'll maybe I'll investigate this. Maybe I can get something at the at the uh, uh, the IKEA or, or whatever they have here. Um, <laughs> just anyway, yeah, I'm just go put, downstairs to the front desk and just ask that. The your nearest USB 3DS cable dispensary, please. I got okay, this. So this place is in the. It's it's really it's in it's in a so the 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 place is like this Japanese spot. It's in a place called uh, Hasluden. Um, and then, and so I printed out these directions before I, I left to get to the spa. So it was like from the airport, I, you did take a, um, you take a high speed rail from, from, um, the airport to Stockholm. Fine. No problem. The high speed rail was like fast and cheap and easy and clean and amazing. And it was this like perfect Scandinavian train. And, uh, it took me into Stockholm. No, no problem. I, uh, and at that point I had like, uh, my cell phone was just working. I like, turned on data roaming and I just went with it and I was like, all right, cool. I got a map. And I uh, walked myself to – then the next thing I had to do was take a boat to, to Hasluden, uh, which was like a half-hour boat ride from Stockholm. Um, so I walked myself to like where the pier, where the boat was, and I got a ticket, and I got on the boat, and I like made it on. And I figured out – you know I told them I need to get off at Hasluden. 
And somewhere on the boat, like AT&T detected that I was using a lot of um, roaming data, and they very helpfully shut off all the data on my phone. So I, <laughs> so I get off the boat, and the boat drives away, like literally like off the boat in 20 seconds, and it's already back off, like to go into the next stop for the rest of the passengers. And I am standing in a wooded parking lot, no civilization within sight. Just a just a dirt road. There's a parking lot with a few few old cars in it, and just a dirt road leading up a hill as far as the eye can see. Oh no God. cell phone data, and I'm and I go into my backpack and I take out the little instructions that I printed to come to the conference, and it's just like get off the boat at Hasluden, and I'm just like I'm literally like standing, <laughs> I'm literally looking around, and there's like like a like a like a a a, a fjord or something behind me, you know, it's a big body of water, and just a just an empty dirt road. And I just, I laughed for like two minutes because it was, I was so tired and so confused. And it's the silliest thing. And I just, uh, I just walked up the road for like maybe a mile. And then I eventually found it. It was, it was literally like, that's the only road and it was on that road. So it was fine. That's, that's but incredible. it was a fun, uh, I had a fun, I had a fun little adventure. And I, I literally, I know it sounds pathetic that I don't know how to use the bathroom, but I'm going to take a picture of the bathroom and I'm going to put it in the show notes. And it's a, I'm telling you, it is a weird, it's a weird bathroom. Nothing does what you expect. And I, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand how to take a shower. You do a Japanese bathing ritual, which is where you like fill this bucket of water and you dump it on your head. But I don't want to do that. I just want to take a shower. I'm so tired. Okay, well, follow this up. Is, this is a great. This is a great setup to talk about one of the best episodes of Lost. Like you could not be in a better mental space uh, than than what you're in right now. At one point, I expect halfway through that you're just going to dump whatever this ritual water is on your head just to get you through this. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's do some. Let's do some follow up first. Uh, and I'm actually pretty excited to uh, to get to the, to the internet. <laughs> this for... is the best follow up of all time. Oh, you're you're just seeing it. Uh, so la- okay, so follow up number one. So last week I read a correction that said that we were wrong when we said that Lost premiered in two thousand and three, uh, 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 and it turns out that that is wrong. That that follow up is wrong, and we were right the first time. It premiered in two thousand and four. Thank you to the million people who wrote in and told us this, and we actually did independently verify it, and we actually did our research and looked into it, and Lost did premiere in 2004. So to the people who told us that we were wrong last week and that it was in 2003, you're wrong, and you screwed us. Um, Fantastic. I blame you for how complicated the bathroom is. All right. Um, Zach uh, wrote in regarding, at the end of last podcast, we were kind of speculating as to how many people survived the crash. Uh, Initially, and he pointed out that in the pilot, uh, someone asks, uh, the, I guess the pilot asked Jack, how many survived? And Jack says at least 48. So that's, that's mm. the answer to that. Um, Taylor wrote in to say, at the end of the most recent episode on Tabula Rasa, you were talking about the background characters on the show. And I, I said I thought they were called shoes. And I, uh, according to Taylor, I was close. But he says, if I recall correctly, the showrunners actually referred to them as socks because they were as indistinguishable and unremarkable from one another as a bunch of socks in a sock drawer. And when they needed characters in the background, they just reached in the sock drawer and grabbed some. It didn't matter who it was. That's really um, good. I like, yeah. I like that way of putting it. Like, yeah, whether so it's right or wrong, I, I, I believe that is apt. So those are like the red shirts in Lost are the, uh, the socks. I like that. Um, Corey wrote in, uh, having seen Walkabout, and said uh, she disagreed with our uh, assessment of the episode. She said, Walkabout is extremely overrated. Sure, the flashback is really interesting. Uh, and it's an awesome reveal, but the on-island story really drags the entire episode. I would classify it as the episode that has one of the best moments in the series, but not necessarily one of the best episodes overall. So we'll, our our goal will be to prove Corey wrong 
during this uh, during this podcast. Yeah, boo hiss. Yeah, I I couldn't. I was I was riveted, and I thought this episode was just as good as it ever was. Uh, yep. Watching it, um, and then uh, finally, Aaron wrote in with a, uh, an interesting question, uh, dear. Eric and Patrick already off to a great start. Do you think that uh, Lost will stay <laughs> stay in the test of time? <laughs> only two people. Uh, do you think Lost will stay in the test of time in the next ten to fifteen years, um, so that if we were to watch the show with our kids, they'd be actually into it? What do you think about that, Patrick? That's an interesting question. Yeah, we were kind of talking about this a little bit. Um, given that uh, you watched a couple episodes, or at least the pilot of X-Files, uh, a show that I have a, a deep reverence for. You know, uh, th- uh, there's also, you know, that fantastic uh, uh, X-Files, the, the X-Files Files podcast that you should all uh, check out as well that uh, has sort of a similar format to us that uh, is kind of going through the X-Files. And you mentioned that, you know, you kind of had some trouble getting into the X-Files, and I had no way of sort of like... Like, I have too much wrapped up emotionally and nostalgically in X-Files. So I can't look at that show objectively at all. Like, I will always be able to watch the X-Files and get great enjoyment from it. I don't know that someone can do that that didn't watch it the first time out. And I think it's really hard to know if Lost is going to be the same way or not. I, I think it's possible that it's like still a very likable and interesting show and... You know, it has modern special effects, so people have less hang-ups about that stuff. Although, even watching Lost now, you can you can see some of the green screen stuff that doesn't really hold up anymore. I don't I don't know if you remember. This isn't spoiling anything, but just the when we get to Saeed and his flashback episode has some of the worst special effects I have ever seen in just a television show, let alone in the history of Lost. Anyone that's seen Lost will probably remember uh, how bad some of that stuff was, but. I think Lost is a really terrific show, but I don't, I don't know how you feel about whether you know you would be able to show this to someone that hadn't seen it on its first run and still be able to enjoy it. Um, well, I think the the pilot the pilot is ten years old, and I think that it holds up remarkably well. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, de- there's definitely some shoddy effects. There were effects that were shoddy when they aired. That Saeed episode looked bad, like when it aired, it was bad as soon as it was made. Um, but I think that the pilot and I think that the general storyline, um, especially in the early seasons, is I think that's going to hold stand up to the test of time um, because, you know, A, it's not reliant on a ton of CGI. Like the effects for the most part are practical, like it's a practical set, the, the plane crash and the beach, uh, and that's always going to look good because they spent the money on it. Uh, and also, you know, we were talking about one of the things that really dates the X-Files is that it's like the X-Files kind of wouldn't exist if they had the internet. If they could just Google these mysteries, they could solve a lot of them. They could just and go to Yahoo Answers and find out exactly what's going on like yeah, in these cases. Exactly. Or they could connect, you know, they could find the people who have the information or whatever. Um, but also, like, there's major plot points in the X-Files and the pilot where it's like there's a fire in their cabin and uh, Scully loses their files like they just, <laughs> they just burn up and there's no more files um so that it just it just doesn't like in that sense like it just doesn't stand the test of time because it's like it's hard to imagine this show happening without the internet um it's not doesn't feel quite modern but lost like they're not supposed to have technology so that that survival story um i think that's just going to become more and more relevant like i think it's at least the first season has this great theme of like having to learn to survive and live and have social relationships and get by without all of the technological conveniences that we kind of take for granted. I, I love that, um, that survival uh, element of the show. 
The the other thing I think about is that you know on the last episode we had pulled up uh, some form threads and respective message boards that we were a part of when Lost was airing, and you know I think a lot of people that were really really into Lost, including ourselves, really cherished that idea of like analyzing and overanalyzing and discussion with uh, people that were also into the show. But it, I also think that kind of ruined the show in some ways. Like it, the show certainly opened itself to analysis and overanalysis. But I also wonder if you were to watch the show separated from that moment in time, from that bubble where, you know, there were like all these amazing write-ups by Alan Seppenwall and Jeff Jensen on Entertainment Weekly, where you were just like examining screenshots of every little thing in the show, which also led to that, you know, backlash uh, about, you know, what the show chose to or to not answer by the end of its run. I wonder if separated from that stuff, and it was just whatever you took away from each episode... I wonder if that's a more enjoyable way to to kind of take the show in. I'm I'm super curious, especially for folks that you know are watching it for the first time that maybe continue to watch the show past you know us looking at the first season. If not being part of that like extremely critical echo chamber uh, changes the way you even perceive that show. Yeah, or just not having sky high expectations about every plot twist and every mystery and reading so much into every little thing. I mean, I I think that was. I think that that one of the big problems with Lost and one of the big reasons that people were disappointed with the ending were just pure expectations. That's why, you know, expectations will kill you every time. That's why whenever there's, like, presidential debates, you know, it's like um, uh, Romney will say, suddenly he'll go out and say, the Romney campaign will be like, Obama's the smartest man alive. Like, he's a genius. If Romney just shows up and his pants don't fall down, he'll win the debate. And (laughs) And Obama will go out and be like, Romney's diabolical. If he doesn't, you know, if if, uh, if if Obama doesn't just immediately vomit on stage, like he'll he'll have won the debate. Like they try to lower expectations for each other, and there was no one in the in you know watching Lost who was trying to lower viewers' expectations. Like all of the echo chamber and all of the frame by frames and all of the mysteries were just sort of like it couldn't possibly add up in the end to what everyone had built up in their heads. It's a little bit different watching a show over the course of six years, and then theoretically you could just watch all of Lost over the summer. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there, It really changes a show when you don't have a full week or a full summer or even longer gaps sometimes in, in Lost. Uh, like in its, uh, like it, you know, its second and third seasons, there was literally websites set up called, uh, you know, is Lost, is something like is Lost on next week or is it a new episode next week? Dot com so that you would actually know whether there was a new episode because the scheduling being became so inconsistent because they were trying to you know always fit lost when you know you, they would have uh, sweeps weeks where they were trying to really bolster the ratings of the network and and all that stuff I think feeds into a frenzy that just doesn't exist when you're not a part of that and so you know if you were to watch all all the seasons like this summer uh, I think you would have a much different experience I don't know if it's better or worse but uh, it would certainly be different. Um, all right. Do you want to uh, set up our interview? We have we have a really cool interview this week. Yeah, I actually had a chance to chat with uh, Jeff Lieber, who is was the screenwriter. Uh, he's currently uh, one of the showrunners on the upcoming uh, what is NCIS on NCIS CBS? Yeah, that seems like a CBS show. Look at that corporate synergy <laughs> here on the Rewatch podcast that is not associated with my other CBS job. Um, 
He uh, Jeffrey Lieber is one of the the showrunners on the upcoming NCS uh, Law, uh, New Orleans, and he was also you know early in his career associated with Lost before it was actually Lost. He was uh, contracted to do uh, a script with ABC, and the script that got headed his way was. Uh, this original idea from Lloyd Braun uh, was the executive who's also famously like best friends with uh, Kirby Enthusiasm. What's his name? Larry David. Larry David. Yes. Uh, and he had the idea of not Larry David, but Lloyd Braun had the idea that, of creating a, a serialized scripted version of Survivor. And Jeff Lieber was the one who was assigned that. And the assignment he got from ABC was that it has to be a hyper-realistic take on what it would be like to have a, a crash a bunch of survivors, and what do they do on this island, and how do they continue to survive? And he wrote that script, and I think there's a the script actually is out there, uh, or at least excerpts are from it. Uh, so we'll make sure and include uh, that in the the show notes. But you know that show is not what ended up on the air. J.J. Abrams was uh, handed the script that uh, Jeff Lieber put together and really shaped it into his own, but. Uh, enough of those elements uh, were still present in the show that made it to air as Lost uh, that uh, Lieber ended up getting a sort of creation credit, uh, which is why you know you never saw him associated with promoting the show or talking about the show uh, because there was kind of a handoff uh, that occurred. And so, you know, fortunately, I was able to get in touch with uh, Jeff. He's on Twitter, and I like there's no magic. I literally just asked if he would like to be on our podcast and he's, and he said, yes. And, uh, we're very thankful. We turned out to actually have a lot in common up front, uh, in, in original research that I did with you when we were thinking about the show, uh, for the, the first episode we recorded was discovering that he is actually from Evanston, Illinois. Now I'm not from Evanston, but I'm from the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, which is in the sort of same vicinity as Evanston. And, uh, as the the interview picks up, you'll you'll see us kind of talking about the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and for game fans, that's where Volition is located. They make the Saints Row games uh, because U of I is an engineering school, which is why Volition always has such amazing tech uh, in their games. But uh, our interview picks up with us uh, talking a little bit about uh, the University of Illinois and how he uh, got started there uh, in acting, and then eventually became a screenwriter. Uh, I should say there are some uh, spoilers in this interview. Um, Jeff Lieber has actually not seen all of Lost, but um, you will hear some of the stuff he's picked up from sort of pop culture and some of his speculations as to the end of Lost. Um, so if you're if you're really sensitive about spoilers, um, just skip through the interview. But uh, it's it's nothing that I think is too bad to listen to. So what what did you go to to school for in Urbana or in Cham- Urbana Champagne? I, I, I was an actor, uh, so I went to the theater. Um, uh, I had every intention of going east to school, and then I followed my then girlfriend to the University of Illinois, um, uh, which my parents were both horrified and, uh, from a financial standpoint, very happy about. <laughs> so, 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 how long did you stick to to acting? Because obviously, you've gotten into screenwriting since then. But like, was acting sort of like the dream you held out, and then screenwriting was what you what you settled for, or did you just find uh, screenwriting was sort of your love down the line? No, it was, I mean, it was one of those, you know, um, evolutions. I, I, I loved acting and I, and I uh, was passionate about it and I moved to Chicago and I worked at Steppenwolf uh, with Jeff Perry and Fran Guinan and I was at, at District Gardens and uh, The Organic and, you know, and I was writing as well at the same time um, plays because, you know, as an actor, you can't, 
do anything unless somebody writes something for you. So I just figured I'll do that too. Um, and then I had this weird moment, literally on stage at Steppenwolf, whereby I was at, I was in Awakened Sing and I was playing Frankie and I was giving the big speech about how we got to get everyone down to the warehouse and all that sort of stuff. And I had this moment where I was just acutely aware of the fact that I was wearing makeup and then I'd said the same thing eight times that week, and there were like, you know, 250 mostly Jewish women falling asleep in front of me. <laughs> and I had, I had either what was an epiphany or a mental breakdown. I don't know which. <laughs> Depends on how you look at it in retrospect. Yeah, in retrospect, it was an epiphany, but at the moment, it was probably a breakdown. Um, and I just knew I was done. And I had written a bunch of uh, half-hour specs, because I thought I was a half-hour writer at the time, and... One thing led to another, and within about a year and a half, I moved out here. And so, so you went to L.A. then specifically with having dropped acting and thinking, okay, I'm going to make it as uh, a 30-minute screenwriter. You, so you had an aim at TV kind of from the get-go. Yeah, I had, I had started writing half-hour specs at that point, and, and this was much more in the era of, you know, I'm, I'm now 45, so I say era in a weird way, but everything happened so fast out here, where the way into the business was you wrote a spec script for Seinfeld, or The Cosby Show, or uh, Mad About You, right? That era has very much changed. Everyone now writes original material because there's, you know, whereas there were, there were at the time 15 to 20 half-hour shows on three networks, right? Now there are, you know, 200 hour and half-hour shows on 12 to 15 to 20 networks if you start defining what a network is. And so... You know, as a showrunner or an agent, you can't possibly know what's going on in all those shows. So how would I know if you've written a good version of of um, The Lake Down Under or, or uh, uh, you know, any of the thousands of shows that are out there right now, you can't, no one can follow them all. So you, you might as well read a, sort of a, an original piece of material. Anyway, so that was a long, that's a long way of saying I wrote... I thought I was going to be a half-hour writer, and then I immediately realized I was about a, a joke a page short. I think it's sort of funny that people like, like if you were to like if I was to go and write a a like a Seinfeld script, it would be called fan fiction. But back in those days, you were asked to write these spec scripts to prove that you actually understood the language of the show, the humor of the show, and it's when fan fiction becomes actual fiction when then you get hired and paid to do it <laughs> yeah no it's that you're exactly correct what was what is now fan fiction was the way into the industry and the, the way you could the reason you could do it back then was because since there were again a limited amount of shows you could write a spec during the off season between shows that accurately uh caught the moment the show was in right so if you were jumping into um uh, Seinfeld, right? You could write a show between season four and five that accurately uh, uh, portrayed where those characters were and sent it out, and someone could say, oh, yes, that's sort of right, right? Now, because there are, because seasons are all over the place and because there's summer shows and short shows, how can you possibly, to, to, to try to write an episode of Game of Thrones that in any way is accurate to where they are is, is impossible, so, you know, so the, so it's it's very much changed now. You know, everyone now, you know, and, and given the, the many different mediums in which you can make things, you might as well write something original because maybe you can make it. So, you know, and I realize that now we're going to be taking a, a bit of a, a leap here, but, um, and, and I read through that piece that 
that you sent me um, that they had written about, you know, loss and your in your involvement in these sort of early stages of that of that show's development. And I'll make sure and link that to people who listen to the podcast so they can kind of get you know the full context that they may not get out of our conversation. But yeah, yeah. You know, and, how- and, and know that, that that article is many years old, so there's there's, a, there's some right and wrong. But I mean, it gives you a, a sort of a vague idea of what happened. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So like, take me up to how you uh, sort of end up writing what is sort of you know, a spec script of, you know, the scripted take on uh, Survivor that, that ABC was looking for at the time. Yeah, you know, what happened what, what happened leading up to the Lost Pilot was I had written a script, uh, I, I had written development with um, Spelling, who I had worked with before, um, and was transitioning out of the spelling of 90210 into what they hoped to be a much more sort of modern version, and so they, they had come to get me for that, and we were deciding what to do. I was in what's called a blind deal, which meant that they were, we knew we were going to do a pilot together, but we didn't know what it was. And I was approached by, and it's Ted Gold, who's a friend. And, and he said, look, I've heard through the grapevine that ABC wants to do a show that is essentially the movie Castaway as a series. And the thing that was, um, you know, sort of hammered to me over and over again, both by Ted and then by the ABC people later, was it had to be sort of hyper-real, right? So it had to be, it was really what you what it would be like to get lost on an island. Um, and I was compelled by that. and was, you know, was a, a massive fan of Lord of the Flies. And so I went in and I pitched it to them. Um, again, with this, this, uh, this uh, structural construct of hyper-real, and we sold it in the room, and it was great, uh, um, um, and it was really exciting. And then that began the development between uh, maybe early September through December, where we tried to put together a show about uh, about a group of ten people who went down. You know, the big the biggest thing was how do you lose a plane, and so we spent a lot of time worrying about the logic of that. And then once you lost the plane, how would you get rid of the concept that people were always looking for that? So those were the two big buys of that pilot. And what were the solutions that you would come up through at the time? Because obviously, you know, the loss that came to be went in a supernatural direction and, you know, they were able to come up with conceits that explained away a lot of that stuff in ways that you wouldn't have been able to get away with if the hyper-realistic version was made. So had you come up with reasons that, like, the plane the plane fell and the reasons people weren't able to find them? Yeah, well, weirdly and upsettingly enough, it was essentially the Malaysia flight. I mean... That was when, when that Malaysia plane went down and this started to happen. I went into a cold sweat because that's what we came up with. The that the transponders are shut off and the plane is way off course, and so that was the first thing. So I had this weird, awful, you know, sort of inner gnawing at me as this Malaysian plane thing was going on because this is what we did, right? And then there was all this talk about landing a plane and blah blah. Now the other part of it, which was much more of the buy, was. Um, and the script is out there somewhere online, so people want to read it, they could read it. Um, and again, it's a first draft and whatever. But um, is that I came up with the construct that statistically, after a week, after seven days, um, you know, 92% of, of, of crashed planes, most of which are small, would not be found. And so the pilot took place over that week. Um, and so the idea was that at the end of the pilot, a week had passed. No one had found them, and they were now fucking and trying to figure it out, right? So that was that was a, a little bit of an artistic buy, but that was the one we tried to go with. And, and so, did, had you like 
you know, I, I'm curious just from uh, you know screenwriting point of view, I, how how much thought had you put into okay, this is where the series is going to go. This is you know the beats that are beyond just you know the first, second, third episode. Like, did you have a sense of what the arc of that show might have been if you had been and been given the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, it was. I was going down the, apoc- the post-apocalyptic apocalyptic, uh, Lord of the Flies route, which was which was again very similar, as you said before, to the way Survivor works, which is splitting people and warring tribes, and you know, in some ways, it is the it is uh, what we had, what we were planning was more in the spirit of of a Game of Thrones, warring warring factions with limited resources and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, two brothers, the central theme of the central relationship in my show, the Jack character was one of two brothers, um, both of which survived the crash. And so they were the, the sort of pieces on both sides. Um, that's as far as we had gotten before, before the change was made and they went the other direction. You know, one of the things that I have to imagine you thought a little bit about is that, uh, you know, is the idea of, of hope like for these people, like what motivates them to keep going beyond just, you know, the, the sheer act of survival. Like, had, had you given any thought to the idea that they might be found at some point as a, as a way of sort of maintaining uh, this sense of hope for the people on the island? Or, or were you more concerned with, you know, which was kind of what you were assigned to do, the idea that it's a complete loss from civilization and humanity and the show should, you know, entirely deal with the idea of the consequences of that? Well, you know, as you as you know, and as the people who watch the actual series know, shows change very much as they go. Right. Um, um, so, I mean, certainly there was the idea we talked about the possibility that that somewhere down the line they are found, and that that series uh, seasons three, four, and five, or something of that version, could um, move us off the island. Um, but really, it was you know. We hadn't gotten that far, and, and, and the biggest question, first of all, was, you know, and the question I think they struggled with once they decided they needed some other element to it, and they abandoned the concept of hyper-real was, will the island feel claustrophobic, right? Um, you know, will you, will you just feel as if you're trapped and you can't go to dinner in a restaurant, which is what the flashbacks start to solve, which is the ability just to live normal life, which people sort of want to see in a TV show. Um, we never had gotten that far, you know, to discussing that, but I think it would have been a real challenge for us. Obviously, you know, the, you, the, the show that you worked on, the, the version of that show you worked on isn't the one that went to pilot and went on to, to series, but, um, is it common for that to be sort of the exchange that happens where, you know, yourself or another writer comes in, does that sort of first take and then it's handed off to someone else? Is that, is that a common experience? I mean, I imagine it's uncommon that the shows then go on to be as big as Lost did, but that actual sort of, sort of writer churn, is, is that common in Hollywood? No. It, well, I mean, it's very common in film, right? It, it happens all the time. In TV, it's become more common. Um, but this was, this was a really um, specific moment in time, uh, you know, those three shows that were launched out of that season out of ABS, ABC, you know, came at the end of a, a, a of a um, period where the, where um, Lloyd Braun and Susan Lyon had been running the network and they were fired just before all this happened. So it came out of a very specific moment um, to which I don't know that there's been another one like it. 
um, whereby things were happening that were not um, the usual fare. Um, so it, it's not nearly as common as it is on the film side, whereby a writer gets to a certain point and then you hire another writer. There, there was a line in, in a piece that you linked to me that, that made me laugh pretty hard, which was that when uh, you know the show was, was handed off and and J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof put this, this very big supernatural spin on it uh, in which if you had gone and pitched any of those ideas as a part of, well, this is where I'd like to take the story, uh, that you would have been laughed out of the room. Yes. Well, it was, again, because, you know, again, at, at, uh, the, the transition – you know, I, I got nothing against those guys, and I certainly, you know, while I while I would have loved to have seen the show I wrote go forward, um, no one could argue that what happened was not, uh, I, I won't say the right move, but a fantastic move, right? You know, something mm-hmm. that caused this, there to be this cultural moment that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, I will say that one of my my only frustration with the sort of the way that tale is told is. Often when you read either uh, whatever, what was the book written about the, the period? Um, oh, uh, the revolution was televised by Alan Sepinwall. No, no, it was in a different book. Um, it was um, it was about that whole period, that period at ABC. Oh, okay. Talk about how how quote unquote frustrating the process was during my during my tenure, mm-hmm. and the reality was there was no frustration it, until I was replaced. There was nothing but happiness, and then there was a, a record scratch, which probably came from the fact that no one, that the people I was dealing with were not communicating with Lloyd up the line, and so it wasn't until he handed him a script that he went, oh, I want something totally different. So, so there was, you know, I used to, I laughed every time I thought about the things that became the show, because every time I tried to expand the palette, I was told, no, 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 you're in this hyper-real world. And so it's, it's just mostly comic to me to look at where it became and the things that both <laughs> caused the show to thrive and caused a great deal of frustration for audience members, right? Because, you know, I, I, you, you heard as much, you know, do they know where they're going as you heard, this is brilliant. And all of that came out of, I think, the necessary um, inventiveness. You know, this is what I mean about it being a, uh, this moment in time, which was the network was changing and drastic things were happening. And so people were out on a limb in a way that, they normally were not, and it caused both great and somewhat confusing things to happen. But I was in a much more structured process whereby there were, was a rule set that I couldn't change. Were, were you actually uh, able to bring yourself to follow along with the show, or was one of those things like, oh, that's my baby, I need to distance myself from it? Um, I think the first year was a very confusing time. I was in a very different place in my career. I was still transitioning into television. So the first, you know, I never... I've met, I've watched maybe eight nine episodes, some of which I've enjoyed a great deal. Um, but I uh, less about that's my baby is that I because the first year was so tumultuous for me personally, I didn't buy in. And by the time that it came to buy in, um, there were other things to distract me, like The Sopranos, you know. Um, so I'm sure there's some at some point I should probably sit down and watch it, especially the first two seasons, which I'm told are, are quite brilliant. Um, but, you know, in some ways, my experience with the show is very similar to the show itself. I exist in a different timeline entirely. Like, you know, <laughs> I, and, and it's almost a parallel side timeline whereby 
you know, as I understand the way the last season went, if you just stepped to the left, there'd be this other show that was totally different that may have worked or may have not, I don't know, um, but is, is again, analogous to the show itself. It's a different timeline. It's weird. Yeah, you know, it's it's sort of like when, uh, like, I have this thing when, you know, like, I publish an article or a video piece I put together, then once it's out there, you know, I just, I gotta, I gotta walk away from it. So I, I wouldn't have blamed you if you, you know, you look at something like that and go, ah, like, I just, you know, I can't associate with it. Like, it's too weird for me now. Like, you know, you often you see when, you know, directors or writers, you know, they see their stuff come up, you know, when it's actually released and they just have to walk away from it because it's just, it's just too weird to look at something that you've spent that much time with. Yeah, I mean, I, I have that experience, frankly, with things I work on until the end. You, once it airs, you're like, oh, good God. You know, I know <laughs> just glad it's over. Yeah, well, yeah, or more just, I know it's hard to look at it with the willing suspension of disbelief and awe that you should when it's totally new to you. you all you see is that one actor's face where you wanted happiness and only got regret, and you tried every way to change the cut. You, you see it in such its minutia that you can't enjoy, you know, it's it's beauty as a whole. So that that's a real experience. I think this was just more that the, the, there was such a sense of whiplash between everything is good, everything is good. I'm going to shoot a pilot. I'm no longer there. Wait, they're doing what? There are there are monsters. You know, uh, <laughs> all that that was such a whiplash that I just couldn't engage for that first period of time. And then, you know, the moment it passed and other stuff was going on, and I just you know never reconnected with it. Is it, is it, is it, you know, I, I completely understand in, uh, in me even reaching out to you and wanting to talk to you about this. Like, is it weird that this comes up probably every once in a while over and over again that people want to talk to you about like this experience and, and lost and, um, you know, this like very unique uh, sort of one-off moment in your career? Um, no, it started out weird. It, it took me a while to be able to just say thank you when people said, hey, congratulations. I felt the need to explain the whole story. And then I thought, they don't care. They just want me to say thank you. So I say thank you. Um, because um, I've gone on and become a showrunner and I'm working on other stuff, it, it to me is really interesting from the um, structural, procedural, in, way inside television, right? So I think there's a real, there are really interesting things to examine from that standpoint that I find really interesting to, to go into, right? As for the show itself, as for the characters and, and the drama, that belongs entirely to to, to JJ and Damon and um, oh shoot, I'm spacing his name. He's a real nice guy um, who's Damon's partner for years, uh, Carlton. Right? Um, yeah, Carlton. That, that, it, you know, it, that be, and Jack Bender. That belongs entirely to them, 100. percent And so, you know, sometimes people will contact me on Twitter and, you know, and link me in with JJ and Damon and say, one more season of Lost, to which I just don't respond because it's just not my place to have anything piece in that, in the art of it all, that piece of it. But I, I think I, I, I find it really interesting when you reached out to me, I thought, oh, well, this is a chance to keep talking about that other piece of it, which I find so fascinating, which is sort of the development of television and the, and the weird cultural moment to which I am, you know, I sort of equate my my piece of Lost as being that weird piece of space dust that must be there <laughs> in order for larger things to collide and the universe is created. If the space dust is not there, it doesn't happen, but the space dust has almost no control over its piece in the, in the story. 
And it was such a sort of unique thing that happened to you. I have to imagine it sort of was a a moment you took lessons from and took forward afterwards in your career. Like what, what did you take away from that experience that, um, you know, you've, you've looked back on as you've gone on to work on other shows and become a showrunner yourself. It reminded me how little power, how little, how oftentimes disappointments have nothing to do with you. Um, which is not to say again, you know, people may read the script and think it's bad or good or whatever. So it's not to say that I am blameless in it, but, in this particular experience, I was a uh, I was a pool table ball in the middle of the of the of the uh, of the table, reacting to things going on around me, and had no ability whatsoever to really chart my own course. Um, you know, no one ever till the day I was gone said, "Hey, we need a new direction." And so. Um, it took me a while to get my head around that, but once I did, it reminded me at times that all you can do is do your work and try to figure it out and hope it goes right, and sometimes when it doesn't, that's, that's nothing to do with you, you know? I mean, again, which is, again, not to suggest in some way that I am perfect or that my poop doesn't stink the way everyone else's does. <laughs> you know, it absolutely does, but in this particular experience, um, I was, you know, again, space dust and part of a, a big bang that I had very little control over. And so what have you gone on to, to work on now? What are you working on these days? I know that, you know, when we've tried to coordinate a uh, time to chat, it sounds like uh, you've got a lot going on. So what are you, uh, what are you attached to these days? Um, I am um, co-running the new NCIS spinoff with a guy named Gary Glassberg. So um, I'm, I'm going to run it out of um, L.A. here and fly up and back to New Orleans. And uh, I just finished a bunch of development with, with FX and with uh, Fox that may go forward as well. So, um, you know, I'm doing all sorts of stuff. I, uh, I just came off, I ran for three years a show for USA called uh, Necessary Roughness. Um, so I was running that with, with the creators there. And before that, I did a show on CBS. So I've, you know, done my, continued on my own little path. The one, the one thing I, I wanted to, to touch on uh, before uh, I let you go was the, there was a moment uh, that was also mentioned in the piece about uh, when you were sort of encouraged by, uh, people around you to go to the Emmys for the first time when when Lost uh, was originally up for a bunch of stuff and you know you had gone through a whole arbitration thing in terms of the writing credit and you know it it sounded like this incredibly awkward time where you you wanted to take ownership of this part of this larger weird thing that you had been a part of for a small portion of but not you know necessarily uh, you know want to overstep that boundary. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was an interesting moment because because. Um, you know, again, I, I was just trying to make peace with, again, being spaced up and what that meant and how I, you know, and, and I was legitimately up for the Emmy because of my, my peace in it all. But, but again, I didn't know any of those people. I didn't know the staff and it was tough. I've since learned, I've since learned how little they knew of my story when I walked in there and I must've seemed like a weird interloper trying to take something that they had all worked on because I, you know, they'd never seen me before. Um, and it became, it's become clear to me since that no one has really had really informed them what my background was and where I came from and what my piece of it was. So, uh, I have since worked with multiple people who worked on that show and had a good laugh with all of them as they've come to understand who I am and what I do and how I work and all that sort of stuff. 
uh, the difference between the way I was sort of pitched and the, who I actually am. Um, but I'm glad I went and did it. You know, I'm glad I went. Although, you know, because it was, again, part of the process of my coming to understand sort of what my piece of knowledge is and how, I, how it all fits together and all that. Uh, but it was really painful. So. Well, it seems like, in, in a weird way, the, the, the way you're describing it, where you were just one piece of a puzzle in which, like, you were just told, hey, go make, uh, you know, go develop this idea of a Survivor scripted series, go. And then, on the other hand, you have J.J. Abrams, who's then handed, you know, a script that could have just been stolen from a you know a stack of scripts for all he knows and is told hey we try this idea and now go do something else with it like in, in weird ways you both were in the same situation but just had no idea uh where one or the other was in that equation i don't know this for certain but i'm willing to go out and willing to say that i don't know that jj knew that i existed until there was a moment <laughs> when somebody said that somebody said hey you have to arbitrate with a guy named jeff lieber and he went who's jeff lieber um so that yes, that is that is sort of part of the tale is that between my end and his beginning, there is a there is a game of three card Monty out there that um, no one I know pieces of but don't know completely of, um, where ideas move back and forth without complete acknowledgement of how, where they had come from or who had created them and all that sort of stuff, and so. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that JJ didn't know where everything had come from or where pieces of things had come from. And, 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 and I don't in any way blame, blame him, not a, a nano percent for not knowing that stuff. And before I let you go, if there's, if there, is there something from what you've worked on, you know, like in, in the 10 years since, you know, obviously we're talking about a, you know, a piece of history from the early 2000s and, it's obviously 2014 now. Is if people wanted to go and, and look at your work, is there something in particular you would point people to? I, I don't know. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I feel like, um, and this is an odd thing to say because it's very insider, but I, I, the thing I'm most proud of is I think if, if you were to get a hold of a call sheet on anything I've ever worked on or run, right, and pick randomly any phone number on the sheet and call and, and mention my name, I think I would be. I think I would stand by the response you got from those people. So there's lots of you know little pieces I could point to a scene or this or a script um, that I'm very proud of. But but most of my my self um, identity comes from feeling like um, I've done a bunch of really good work and I've been a decent sort to the people I've I've dealt with. Um, you know, I'm I'm super happy to be here and say I, I I love the staff. I love the show that we're coming up with. You know, it's all that's good. But I don't know. If there's a moment in time that I point to and say, oh, that's the thing I I I I point to. So yeah, I, I haven't actually read my version of Nowhere in probably a decade. I, I I'm trying to think if I want to or if it would be a horrifying thing. I don't know. <laughs> well, really, really because I'm not looking it up online and finding it as we speak is probably still is enough of a horrifying thing that that I that I don't choose to do it again because what part of what uh, the creation of a television show is that there is so much change between the final draft of a script and what you see on screen that that process has to be has to be gone through that piece of the evolution has to be gone through for, for one to ever know what a TV show really is well when can people look forward to uh, NCIS uh, was it New Orleans right yeah New Orleans is what I'm working on there do you, do you know, is, is there a premiere date or anything like that, or is that just sometime in the future? No, no, no. It's it's September something, and I should know that considering we start shooting in 
four weeks minus one day. But, um, you know, again, as television works, you just look at the fire that's closest to you, and the fire that's closest to me right now is the first day of shooting and not the air date. <laughs> but it, it, it's the first Tuesday of, of network season this year as, as we, we air right after the original Wednesday. Awesome. Well, Jeff, I, I super appreciate you taking the time. Like, this was completely unnecessary, but I, I really uh, appreciate that you, you know, responded to a random guy uh, from Evanston or <laughs> Northwest Suburbs on Twitter so that we could chat about this. Oh, no, look, I, I massively appreciate it, and I, and I find this stuff really interesting, and I, and I really am a big supporter of sort of the what is becoming the nexus between the creative community out here and the the lifeblood of the watching that happens out there. And, I, and I'm all for those things running into each other. Cause I feel like it will, it will be the reason we thrive going forward. And that we find people who are the new people, the new voices out there. So thanks to uh, Jeff Lieber uh, for joining us. That was uh, extremely cool of him. And uh, thanks Patrick for doing that interview. That was um, a real treat to listen to. Um, we will put uh, in the show notes, which are available at rewatchpodcast.com, uh, we'll put a link to the uh, original interview that Jeff uh, is referring to um, that, that uh, Patrick and him were kind of talking about. And we'll also put uh, a link to Jeff's uh, original script for Lost. Um, so if you want to read that stuff, uh, it's at rewatchpodcast.com. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was um, um, that Jeff talked about that his mandate was kind of to be uh, hyper real with the with the writing and that they they didn't want any sort of like fantastic elements in the pilot <laughs> and which is which is which is great in retrospect uh how much of that you know abrams was able to get away with but it was interesting to me how much um that he was worrying about like the details of how do you lose a plane which is like a, a totally reasonable question to ask in, in a hyper real pilot and it, I think it's, it wound up being like a real strength of Abrams' script that like they clearly didn't worry about that at all. There was like ten seconds of hand waving where the the you know when they find the pilot, he goes like, yeah, there's something something transponder. We got off course and they're not looking for us in the right place. And then it's like done. Like you, it's solved in two seconds of exposition. Yeah, yeah. They very much kind of go out of their way in in the Abrams pilot to be like that's not a mystery you should be concerned with. You know, and at that point you're not sure if. You know, the showrunners even know, you know, exactly how they got there yet. But they, they find a good way of making that not one of the mysteries that you're worried about. But obviously, you know, you can imagine from a screenwriter's point of view, and this happens with, you know, with games, with any sort of world building, you build up parts of that world even if they're never actually show shown to the viewer or the, the player or, or what, what have you. Like when you're, when you're building a world, when you're building a space – you know, oftentimes writers will talk about wanting to know more about, you know, they'll have a Bible. You know, Lost had a Bible, but it was a little bit different than uh, sometimes when you see mythology Bibles that sort of explain, here are the boundaries of this world, here's what we know about it. It uh, doesn't mean that's all going to appear and be explained to people, but, you know, actually knowing how the plane crashed probably gives you as a screenwriter sort of a frame of reference for how you're going to write about the experience of these survivors. Yeah. Um, so you want to jump into a walkabout? So good. Does it, does it hold up for you? Do you still get the chills? Oh, I was getting teary eyed at the, I don't want to jump all the way to the end of the episode. Uh, you know, we should work our way there, but, uh, we're, we're specifically introduced <clears throat> to Michael Giacchino's lock theme. Uh, you know, he's sort of like a little musical cue that, uh, that plays whenever there's certain of an important lock moment happening. I believe, 
the like ultimate version of that is called Locked Out on the Lost Season One uh, <laughs> soundtrack because Michael Giacchino is a big fan of like shitty puns in all of his uh, soundtracks. <laughs> if you go and look at all of Michael Giacchino's soundtracks, they're all horrible, horrible puns like across the board. They make it seem like a two-year-old wrote all of the titles for his uh, soundtracks, but uh, it, it's an incredible. Moment. I think sort of the emotion for me comes from knowing. And we get first glimpses of this in the episode of just how much of a tragic figure Locke is. Like, he is, of anyone in the show, he has the saddest story arc. Uh, and, and you get glimpses of that uh, in the very beginning of the episode. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like, I, um, fr- from this episode, like, I felt so much like they were setting Locke up as kind of the hero of the show. And of the main character of the show, um, who is sort of like the, the sleeper main character, like you don't meet him until a little bit in. But he seemed like more than anyone, like he was going to be poised to go on the like Joseph Campbell hero's journey. Do you know about that? The whole like the the like uh, the world story or like the, you know, the one story that's like, you know, Star Wars and Gilgamesh mm-hmm. and it's like told over and over. Like it's like, you know, he has these tragic circumstances and he's thrown into this world, you know, without uh, um, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't ask to go on an adventure. He's sort of like uh, th- thrust into the situation on the island, and then he rises to the occasion, and he's able to like um, return to where he came, having changed, or at least that's that's where you hope he's going. But um, you know, I just for, when I saw this episode, it was like everything clicked into place, and I really truly felt like I had um, a character who I cared so much about on the show, and who for me became like the main focus of my lost watching. Um, I just couldn't, I, I mean, from, from, from the, this episode on, I just couldn't get enough lock. Yeah. And they, you know, they wait so long, even in an episode where they paint him as such a different figure, you know, a lot of lost is, uh, you know, especially in the early episodes about, you know, new lives for these characters, you know, what you were off the Island doesn't matter anymore. It's about who you are on the Island. And we, we saw that kind of weekly established with Kate and they have some real problems you know, sort of expanding upon that or at least sort of beating that idea into the ground uh, throughout the entire series. But I think Locke encapsulates, like, the best example of that, not because the the personality of him off the island, how people treat him off the island, like, regardless of, you know, what we come to learn about his physical circumstances, like, he is seen as just a pathetic figure that cannot get his life together. You know, it opens, you know, that you know the TPS report scene, when this smug little, you know, 20-something boss comes over uh, right after Locke is having a conversation on the phone about being a colonel. And that's immediately when the show plays into this idea you, you have of Locke based on how he's been portrayed on the island as, as maybe an evil figure or, if not malevolent, then certainly a strong personality that has seen a lot of shit. And immediately they play into that and then just pull the rug from under you and just realize no one in the real world has any respect for John Locke. Yeah, I love that, and I, I think um, um, I, I think I'm if I'm remembering this right, like in the original like Lieber's script, Locke was kind of like this military figure. Is that right? I'm not sure. It, it certainly could and be I, possible. I, I haven't had a chance to read through like, myself. There, there was I know there was there was a military figure on the island, and I always loved. I always wondered in the back of my mind if this was sort of a little like making fun of that or nod to that. Where it's like it starts in that really closely cropped, you know, zo- like like zoomed in shot of Locke's face, and he's on the phone, you know, speaking in a low voice, and he's like, 
go ahead, G8. This line is secured. It's Colonel Walk. And you're like, oh, shit. He's like a cool military guy. Like, what? I mean, just what a great... That's almost as good for me as like when they um, when they kill the pilot uh, in the in the pilot and you're like, oh, man, now they're now they're really fucked. Like, you thought you had this authority figure and now they have nothing. Like, I love that, that they get the same moment of like, you know, you're going to, you know, oh, Locke's going to be like the badass and he's got all these knives and he's going to kind of save the day or be this like this awesome, you know, like hunter figure. And then the more you learn about him, like they just, like you said, they totally pull the rug out. Yeah, I mean, the, the opening um, moment when you have, uh, where Locke throws the, the knife at uh, the, the seat beside I mean, Sawyer, like sets him up as like this amazing badass. But then when you think about then the context of the entire episode, like, what the fuck is he doing? Like he's he's never done anything like this before. Like it's it's incredibly irresponsible for him to be just like throwing knives around just, just because he spent a lot of time reading about how all this stuff is supposed to go. He's he's never in his life put it into practice and the island in an instant allows him to start applying what he's been obsessing over for, you know, what seems like, you know, based on what we can surmise from from the flashback decades of think of like overthinking this whole idea so that that scene where they're having the argument about the 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 boars and then the knife goes whizzing by and it just like it's silent for him it has that great moment of silence then it like whip pans over to lock and and he gives us a little speech about the boars that is one of the all-time coolest moments of like any tv show i've ever seen i am such a sucker for that moment and the little monologue like terry o'quinn just totally owns that moment and i i just love that that was at the end of last uh, the last uh, episode that was the sort of scene that i was building up i actually misremembered it i thought that scene was like right how the episode opened but the episode actually opens with a more boring scene of like the boars like scaring everyone at night um but man that scene just i I mean that will always stick in my memory it's like one of the all-time coolest moments of lost i just i just can't get enough of that yeah and we also it's funny that you'd um mentioned or we brought up x-files earlier because one of the the things we hear about pretty early in this episode and then becomes a refrain uh throughout the episode is don't tell me what i can't do which uh in the x-files in a couple episodes in you hear uh you know Mulder speak the line i want to believe which ends up thematically encompassing everything about uh Mulder as a character x-files as a show um, it's like in broad strokes, like that is the theme of, of the X-Files. And uh, I think, you know, even though in, in Walkabout, this is talking specifically about Locke, I would go as far to say as don't tell me what I can't do, you know, goes to encompass a lot of just the general themes of, of Lost, especially as they're being set up early on. You have people uh, who want to do certain things but are, are fighting against that for, for one reason or another. Um, a lot of them have emotional hangups, you know, whereas with Locke, you know, obviously he has emotional hangups, but a lot of them are rooted in, at least as far as we know so far, uh, you know, his, his physical disability. Oh, it's fucking Swedish Netflix. I just pulled up the, trying to pull up the episode on Netflix so I could get the time code of the scene and I put in Lost the literally the only result on Swedish Netflix is the 1998 film Lost in Space <laughs> with Gar- with Gary Oldman. <laughs> well, just find a cool moment in Lost in Space and then put a time code for that. There is not one. That's going to be a long. That's going to be a long wait. It says here that the movie is two hours and ten minutes. <laughs> There's not any time in that two hours and ten minutes that qualifies as well, a cool for, moment. It, I've seen that movie and it's a it's a 
it's a it was a disappointment when I was twelve, and it's a disappointment. If you have trouble now. falling asleep, at least you know what to do. <laughs> Just watch Lost in Space. Um, yeah. Also, I believe I need to double check this, but this might be the first episode directed by Jack Bender. No, he directed Tabula Rasa. Okay, so he directed. So J.J. Abrams directed uh, the first, you know, the pilot, which is split into two episodes. Uh, and then this is not something that most people would necessarily pick up on because you shouldn't, you know, who pays attention, who directs, you know, particular episodes of a television show. I think the only other time you really see that happen uh, right now is maybe with like Game of Thrones or with Breaking. Well, maybe it's because it's become a little more common. Like you, you notice with uh, with Breaking Bad, there was uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Rian Rian Johnson? Rian. I, a lot of people just say Ryan. Ryan, Ryan so. John- that's what I've been hearing. That's what I've been hearing because he he he's announced that he's uh, kind of kind of take over the um, the Star Wars franchise once Abrams uh, kind of does uh, Episode uh, Seven. So either either way, so some know. some of the best episodes of Breaking Bad directed by him. Like when you saw his name attached, you knew that this was an important episode. Like this is one that you know they're clearly giving to a professional. Uh, you know, you've seen that with uh, Game of Thrones. Neil Marshall gets some of the really big like spectacle. Uh, episodes of Game of Thrones, and in the Lost Lostiverse, Jack Bender is that guy. When it's not, you know, J.J. Abrams came and then left after uh, the pilot, but you know when you see directed by Jack Bender, that is an episode that you really should be paying attention to. And obviously he, you know, does the first couple because he's sort of establishing the tone uh, of the series post-Abrams, but uh, that's definitely something as you're watching the show to, to take note of, because if you notice Jack Bender, it means... It means shit is going down in that episode. Jack Bender does not direct episodes in which nothing happens. Yeah. Um, so what did you what did you think of the the rest of the sort of on island story and walkabout? So it's mostly it's like the boar hunt and Michael is injured. Um, is this where is this the one where Jack? I can't remember. Is this where Jack sits down with uh, with yes. Rose, or is that that is? Yeah, that yeah, that was a great scene. That's one of my favorite. That's another one of my favorite scenes in Lost, especially um, with, with, with the retrospect of knowing how the whole show plays out. That's a, a really fun scene to rewatch. I mean, yeah, um, I, I know we had the, the 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 reader earlier on saying that the on island stuff, you know, not much happens. It's it's not that, that it's kind of boring. But like, I couldn't disagree more, especially when you start thinking about the ramifications of some of the elements that are are brought up, you know, like at the, you know, when they they hear the the transition uh, from the French woman, like, and then what's brought up and walk about is, oh, there's a power source. And you start thinking about that. It's like, wait a minute, like, what is a power source doing on this island? And you start thinking about what that could mean. Like, that's like, like, why why is there a power source on this island? Like, of all of the things, even though there's this crazy invisible dinosaur floating around, like a, a, a power source really raises the stakes of what could be happening on this island. And then on top of that, the fact that we find out Locke was uh, was handicapped and then on the island is able to move again implies a whole lot about this island, at least in terms of you know what it could possibly be. And, and I think this episode, more than a, a lot of other episodes, especially for the setup ones for these characters in the first season, like what's happening on the island is such a great... Uh, contrast to what you're seeing in the flashbacks. Like, the flashbacks could not show a more pathetic creature 
and yet the on-island stuff, even though there's a couple of moments where Locke is kind of shooken up and he's still kind of getting his grips uh, with, with like what he's able to do now, you know, like when he has the conversation with Helen and he's got the two plane tickets and he reveals to her that he's got the two plane what, tickets. What, what was going – what exactly was, was going on with Helena? I was always like a, a slightly confused by that when I saw it originally and I think – it's just he's ta- he's just really pathetic, right? He's talking to like a phone yeah. sex operator. Yeah, he's, and, yeah, he's talking okay. to, a, to a phone sex operator. He's paying $90 an hour in order to do that right. and for whatever reason – he has managed to continue talking to this Helen woman, presumably because he can get her to, or she can get him to stay on for hours on end, and then she and the company make more money. But, but obviously, you know, he's someone that doesn't have a lot of important figures in his life, and thus reads into a conversation like this as though it is actually uh, sort of an emotional relationship. And like at that at that moment, he is at his absolute lowest. There's there's some sort of like in his bedroom too. There's some sort of like device, like a, a medical device or something. Are we are we supposed to know what that is? I couldn't or figure. Is it I, yeah, I couldn't figure that out either. Uh, there, there's something he kind of turns off when he's on the phone. Maybe that's related to his condition. You know, I I, I don't know enough about you know folks that would be in a condition like that if they they have devices like that. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean they they certainly suggest that. He's got something going on, but they they wait as long as possible to give you that actual reveal that is that his legs don't work. Yeah, it's shot. I mean, it's it's so clever and it's shot so well. The way they set all those scenes up so that you don't know that he's in a wheelchair, um, and the boss is being so dismissive of like you can't you can't do that walkabout like, and then you find out you know at the end like and like like you know getting to rewatch it, you're like yeah, that guy's actually not being as as. He, you know he's got he's got at least some some part of a point like he's not just being a dick um and the fact that it's called a walkabout that, like they're 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 yeah, foreshadowing right? you know and even in the even in the pilot you get that shot of Locke looking at his foot and you don't know what that means he doesn't you know like wiggle his toes or anything but you know it's established early on that this character is looking at his foot for some reason and and at the time you just surmise that to be well He's just amazed that he survived this, and he's just making sure all of his limbs are still there from a plane crash. But you know, you go back and look and realize, like, oh wow, they were uh, they were really sort of foreshadowing that. And there's some interesting stuff uh, laden in this episode that you know people who have watched the whole series, you know, they it's hard to know you know how much is going on there. Like you know, when he's at his desk early in the episode, he uh, is working on his TPS report. And he's got this ticker noise that's going on. And it's the same ticker noise that you associate with the weird creature in the forest the, the couple of times it has come through. I, I don't know if that, you know, means anything. It's hard to know how much they were. Well, there's, I mean, there's, clear, there's clearly some connection set up between, like, Lost and the creature. Because that's, I mean, that's, that's, in a lot of ways, I think that's sort of the on island. That's sort of the climax of the episode is uh, Lost. Locke has this... Um, Oh right, yeah. Um, I mean that makes yeah that showdown. makes. I mean that's essentially that's the foreshadowing. There is hearing that yeah. ticker uh, noise is then letting you know that obviously Locke has some connection to this island. What that connection is, he doesn't know, but he's the only one that doesn't run away from the monster. You know whatever it is, because yeah, he just he just <laughs> stares it down. And there's that there's that there's and and so you know before we had um, we had 
talked about that they they had established and lost that they weren't going to do any crane shots. So you never see a top-down view of the island or a helicopter view because they didn't want to kind of give the viewers a sense of scale like that. It was more like to keep it from a human perspective and, and to keep it more mysterious, they never shoot from above. And it's actually one of the few times in the early seasons where you ever see a, a shot that's looking down where you you see things from the monster's perspective sort of staring lockdown and he looks like real small standing there just sort of like meeting meeting its its stare um but uh yeah he's i guess he's the only character so far who's sort of come had any sort of encounter or at least come face to face with the monster and uh not not been killed from it and the rest happens off screen and then he, he's asked about it you know uh uh uh, who the hell is, was asked him later? Like, uh, like what happened well, out there? Mike, Michael like, no. compliments him on the uh, you know uh, collecting the boar, which actually happens at the end of the episode when they actually you know the other characters believe that uh, Locke's been lost. You know they saw what happened to the pilot, so they just assume that Locke's going to be killed off as well. Then Locke shows up with the boar, and when they're doing the memorial uh, with the uh, the fuselage, a very t- morbid moment in this episode uh, when you when you think about it. Uh, yeah, he uh, he basically shrugs it off, and you know, you know, this is all. Well, he lies. Yeah. He says not. He says nothing yeah. happened. So it's like it, it's immediately. It's one of these these really frustrating tropes and loss that keeps coming up. Is like these people, if they would just communicate with each other, <laughs> like they would get to the bottom of some of these mysteries. But, but I think um, lack of you know, obviously, yes, that's a trope of loss that I, I think it strings along to a frustrating degree a lot of the times. But in this specific case, like lock. You know, what is he to gain from explaining this? It's going to make him seem crazy, and he wants to be shown as an authority figure. He wants to be shown as a potential leader of this group, and, you know, power struggles amongst the leadership is totally something that plays out in the first couple seasons of the show. And so if he was to say, I could not use my legs, now I can use my legs, the island has healed me, like, no one's going to believe him he's just going to be he's going to lose all sense of legitimacy that he has gained from what he's done so far even if he might be telling the truth uh he also he was al- that was that was that your reading the first time you saw this was was that the island healed his legs i don't know i don't know what i thought about it i think i think it's so i think I th- it's, it was so early it was more just like it's it's such a shocking reveal that it, i don't know if i even gave it much thought I mean, my my assumption was there's that scene where they get charged by the boar when they're on the hunt for the first time, and Michael gets gored by the boar's tusk, and Locke sort of collapses and he falls over, and he sort of like grabs his leg, and you can see that he's he's can't his legs are sort of failing him, like he has this like crisis of confidence, and his legs stop working. So I just sort of assumed that he had some sort of psychosomatic condition. Like I didn't assume at first that there was anything like. Um, you know, supernatural happening with, with the island or, or, you know, or at least I didn't want to think that. I wanted to, to have a more, um, you know, a, a something that was just in the context of the episode, right? Like to, to reference the thing we were talking about last week, like I wanted it to be a mystery where it was like, oh, it was, it, it's kind of explained by it being like a psychosomatic thing that's wrong with his legs. Um, but I, but I do remember watching this episode over and over. I was, I thought this episode was key. Walkabout was like one of the key episodes that had all the clues to the whole show because it introduces so many of these great questions of like Locke's legs. And there was this device in his bedroom that I remember thinking that device is going to be key. That's very important. <laughs> um, and then the, the other piece is Jack sees the visions of 
uh, the man in the suit, uh, which we'll, we'll learn about more in uh, next week's episode. Um, but that was very, very weird and, and mysterious, and, and it's almost had the way it was shot and and colored and cut it had almost like this horror mm-hmm. element to it um and jack is so unsettled by it so I, I remember seeing that and thinking like this is key this is a big part of of the mystery as well when it's it's an episode that you know tabula rasa sort of uh, puts aside the mythology and the lore that it's starting to build up about this place and the characters and the ramifications of of them being there and then walkabout swings heavy in the other direction like you get the monster you learn about Locke's legs like you have Jack having weird visions and it's it's lost at its absolute best like I, I think the best episodes of Lost were the ones you know like we've talked about before where the mythology serves the characters um, and, and the characters drive what's happening and, and strange things are happening to them uh, that are a result of this mythology and this lore uh, in the world they're a part of but like this encapsulates what I loved about lost when it was operating on all cylinders you know when it wasn't pandering uh in terms of mythology and like providing answers when it wasn't uh pandering to you know the romance crowd which is actually what gave lost the you know the stellar ratings that it had it was because people were interested in kate and uh the various uh love triangles that that come out of uh her being on on the island um but this show, like this episode, is like other than the pilot, like this this really clear example of what was so special about this show. I think. Yeah, and it's and the 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 the, the thing with Locke and, and him being in a wheelchair, like that is not. I mean, that works brilliantly as this great question and and this great piece of mythology. But it's also just a great character moment. Like I get so choked up at the end of the episode, yeah. sort of when it all snaps into perspective, and that wonderful Locke theme is is sort of swelling at the end and you see they put the wheelchair in the fire and you just get this great look of, of satisfaction on Locke's face. Like what a great character moment. Like that is just so earned by seeing his whole journey um, play out. And I, and I like, it's just such a smart episode too. Like they don't handhold you through this stuff. Like you sort of need to put all of these, these pieces together and, and get all of the meaning out of it. And I like that it's not spoon feeding it to you that it, 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 you know, for a network show, like it's, it's, I think this episode is, um, it's letting you do a lot of sort of satisfying work as the viewer to piece all of that together. Yeah. And and I think what makes like the reason it's so great, the way it all kind of comes together when, you know, Locke reveals that he's in the wheelchair and then it cuts to, you know, the lock theme and all that music swells is that it's this really earned sort of mythology twist and character moment as opposed to, you know, like when twists just happen to be twists, you know, when, when it's just to confuse the viewer, you know, that those aren't nearly as satisfying. They might be surprising, but they're not, they don't have a, a lengthy satisfaction to them. They're only as satisfying as being in that moment when the twist occurs and you're surprised. Whereas what makes... What happens with Locke so satisfying is because it's earned by the character, and you understand why it means so much to him. Like, it's not—it's yeah, not it, just that he's on this island and has a new personality. Like, this is a man who's been dealing with being paralyzed for four years, has been denied what he considers his destiny for four years, and obviously, there's a lot more to that. But you can see the emotion in in a moment that you originally looked at as just being. He was so happy to be alive, but obviously there was so much more to it, and I think that's that's what they earned so well in those final moments. 
Yeah, that that twist at the end, it it hits you first in your heart because you have this great sudden understanding of of Locke and why he is the way he is and what this all means to him. Um, And then it sort of hits you second in your head when you're like, wait a minute, how does his legs start working? Like you just get that great, you get to make that great moment for yourself as the viewer. Um, I, I really dig that. Um, so Patrick, uh, before we, um, wrap up for the week, do you want to do some, uh, trivia about, uh, this episode walkabout? Yeah. Uh, these come courtesy of, uh, Lostopedia, which is a, a great resource, uh, for folks that, uh, have watched the show. Do not look at Lostopedia if you have not watched the show because you'll get all sorts of references and links to, uh, things that you don't want to know about yet. But, uh, that and IMDb are where we've plucked. Uh, some of these uh, from uh, so this first one uh, after the episode aired ABC announced that Lost had been picked up for full season which seems that was Lost Destiny was to be uh, to be announced after that one uh, the original episode title was Lord of the Flies uh, a, re- a reference to the revelation that John Locke was nothing more than an office drone but apparently was considered too glib and uh, a little too on the face uh, for them to, to huh. stick with that wow uh, in the original edit of this episode the photos of fill in the blank, but the woman that Saeed was looking at uh, when he is handed a photo of clearly a woman that means a lot to him. Uh, what they filmed uh, was not what showed up in the episode uh, because they hadn't actually cast uh, who that character was. So they actually refilmed mm. that specific scene of Saeed or someone else holding that photo uh, with a photo of the woman they ended up actually casting, which I'm sure is like very common in television You know when they actually figure out when characters are going to be integrated into the story but uh this is also the episode where uh emily day emily day raven emily day robin claire anyway uh she's finally named in this episode we actually don't know her name uh until oh, out. really yeah. so <laughs> we we definitely like totally screwed up our idea that we're going to try and not name characters before they're actually named well you know by the way like we were had that whole argument about in the pilot uh discussion of like whether we should say sawyer's uh-huh. name or not but they say they clearly say Sawyer's name. Oh, do they? The oh, great. Yeah, we just Fantastic. missed it. Yeah. Uh, Locke tells Randy, who's his boss in uh, the office, that Norman Croucher climbed Mount Everest despite being a double amputee. Uh, while Norman Croucher did scale a lot of mountains, he did not climb Everest. Uh, let's see. Huh. Uh, <laughs> this one is just f- funny for the last bit. When John Locke is being is shown standing up at the end of the episode, Claire can be heard screaming desperately for help before Jack shouts at Locke to give him a hand. Yet in the pilot, Claire can be heard screaming exactly the same way after Jack and Locke have already freed the tourniquet man. This blooper has been fixed in at least the German localization. <laughs> <laughs> so what a weird, con- what a strange continuity here. And then this last one uh, uh, is for you. Uh, in the flashback, Locke has an electromedical nerve stimulation machine by his bed. It is a pro-elect-DT electromedical device from the HACOMED, from HACOMED, used for stimulating motor nerves for the purpose of providing muscle re-education. Uh, the name HACOMED, like, already makes it sound bogus to me. Yeah, now I need to see if that's, like, one of Lost fake corporations. Um, this website that I've pulled up looks like it could be completely bullshit, but it does appear to be an actual... <laughs> All right, well, we'll, we'll link to the uh, the Hakomed uh, electro nerve stimulation device uh, in the show notes. 
Um, Patrick, I am going to go uh, lie on this uh, futon, and I'm going to take my DS that has no power, and it's just going to be a black screen, but I'm going to unfold it, and I'm going to hold it, and I'm going to pretend that I'm playing Shovel Knight and just wish that I brought a USB cord for my DS and just sadly try and figure out how to use the bathroom. Um, So while I'm doing that, um, you guys can watch the next episode of Lost. Uh, Next week, we're going to watch White Rabbit. That is episode four of Lost as the first uh, Jack flashback. Uh, Not my favorite episode of Lost, but there is some good uh, mythology and you do kind of learn uh, what the deal is uh, with Jack, um, which at this point in the show is uh, still exciting. Anything that that jumps out to you about White Rabbit? (laughs) Enjoy your complete disdain as you finish just setting up White Rabbit. (laughs) Which at this point in the story is, is still interesting. You're right. You're not wrong, well, though. You're not. You're not wrong. I mean, we could we could jump right to the episode where they explain how Jack got his tattoos. Ah, uh, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I I don't remember a, a whole lot uh, about this episode uh, actually, uh, which may be, you know, for exactly the reasons that you're insinuating. But you know, I I I liked Jack and his arc, and you know, the relationships that form. Uh, the core of his reason uh, and and emotional struggle that that he goes through uh, on the island. So uh, I I like Jack a little bit more than I think most uh, people did. So I'm actually looking forward to seeing uh, who the heck he was running after, some scary man in the suit, some slender man creature in the background. Oh, you don't have to watch the episode. I'll tell you who that was off the air. That's very nice of you. you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as always, the show notes for this episode, uh, we had some good ones uh, this week, too. We'll have the, 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 the Hakomed nerve uh, dingus. <laughs> um, it's available at rewatchpodcast.com. Uh, you can email us your questions or comments at rewatchpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we love uh, hearing uh, all of our uh, fuck-ups and uh, comments and, and everything, so um, please feel free to shoot us an email. Write uh, a review. Let's see. You Write can a help- review. Yeah, that's right. You can help us out by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. And if you've got a second, um, just uh, stick a, a good review for us on iTunes. Uh, I'm not exactly clear on how that works, but uh, it, uh, it helps us out in the, in the ratings and the recommendations and all of that. Uh, and as always, thanks to Steve Fabwash Kim for our artwork. Thanks to Dose One for our amazing theme music. You can check out his work, including his ringtone of the month, at doseone.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Lex Friedman in the mid-roll for hooking up our sponsorships. Thanks to Jeff Lieber for uh, being very generous with his time and giving us a great interview. That was a real pleasure and, and certainly not something I expected when we started the podcast, but um, what, a, what a great a treat to get to listen to that. And thanks to all of you for listening along with us. Uh, we'll see you next week when we talk about White Rabbit. been more excited to go to sleep in my life. <laughs>